Today's reading is Acts 17, 22 through 31. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Think about the most recent ritual you participated in. Maybe it was 4th of July with a barbecue, fireworks. Maybe it was a graduation ceremony with a party that followed. Maybe it was an anniversary or birthday. Rituals are powerful. They shape us by connecting us to, to people, to events, and to life itself. The marketing world knows the power of ritual in our lives. And in an article, Why Brands with Rituals Will Rise to the Top, Frank Cowell asks, Do you ever wonder why the Oreo is the world's top-selling cookie? He writes, Sure, the chocolate wafer and creamy inside has a lot to do with it, but so too does the ritual of eating an Oreo. Think about it. No matter where you go, the whole world over, people just seem to know the right way to eat an Oreo. First you twist it, then you lick it, then you dunk it, right? This ritual aspect of eating an Oreo has become an iconic part of pop culture. It conveys a sense that the way you eat the cookie matters, which means the cookie itself matters, which elevates its perceived value and desirability in the eyes of consumers. Likewise, connoisseurs of Corona know the right way to drink the beers by placing a slice of lime in the bottle's neck. Anything less, and you just won't enjoy the product as much, and certainly not as intended. And don't ever get between a Guinness drinker and his or her beer pour. Do it right, at an angle, and in two separate motions, and you're in. But do it wrong, and the beer drinking experience is said to be spoiled. Again, such rituals convey added value and importance. They also convey a sense of being part of an exclusive club or family which plays to consumer emotions and loyalties. And let's face it, we all want to be part of the in-crowd. Someone has said that our lives are based on consumer rituals, on consumer rituals. Think about Starbucks, how Starbucks plays to that. 
Starbucks marks out our holidays, and there's an advertisement that I found. It's not the holidays without them. They begin the holiday with a, a pumpkin spice latte that marks out the fall, and that is the precursor for moving into the rest of the holiday season with the red cup. They know that if they can tap into our rituals, that we come to expect them to be part of our rituals of the holidays. And it feels like we're bombarded with messages and images and practices related to consumption. Vincent Miller, in his book, Consuming Religion, says this, Along with sporting events, rock concerts, shopping malls, and magazines, television provides images of the good life that bring virtual, vicarious fulfillment. In the face of a spectacular world with which our everyday lives could never compete, we are reduced to passive spectators, consumers of our own illusions. So all the time we, we sense we're being told that this is going to connect us, that we belong by, by consuming this product, but all the time it's, it's, we're being offered a false sense of connecting, a false sense of belonging, which leads to participating in an illusory way. We really don't contribute anything. And so it's no surprise that the church is not exempt from this consumer reflex. Mark Sayers writes in The Vertical Self, When the church becomes controlled by consumer culture, the worship service becomes a pseudo-media event, the church building becomes a theme park, Christian leaders become Christian celebrities, teaching becomes entertainment, salvation becomes self-help, discipleship becomes lifestyle enhancement, concern for the soul becomes concern for the self, church becomes a brand, and the gospel becomes a slogan. A church that seeks to entertain consumers loses its ability to challenge them. Entertainment rarely transforms. Think about the last movie you went to. Did you come out going, my life has been transformed? <laughs> Avengers 5, my life has been transformed. <laughs> I'll never be the same. So why am I talking about this? It's because this mindset can gradually creep into all areas of life. And you can eventually find yourself living life based upon this question, what do I get out of this? And what I'm suggesting to you is that God wants to shift the focus of our hearts to this question, and that is, what does it mean to follow Jesus and contribute to his kingdom? That that's the question that Jesus wants to shift us to begin to ask, is what does it mean to follow Jesus and to contribute to his kingdom? John Tyson says, you don't get a better relationship with Jesus without taking on responsibility in his kingdom. You don't get a better relationship with Jesus without taking on responsibility in his kingdom. So if you're new to grace, we're in the final, I'm giving the final message in a series we've been doing for several months called Living in God's Kingdom. And today I simply want to answer a very practical question, and that is where might we start? Where might you start? I want to come around full circle to the very beginning again and ask the question, where might you start to really live in God's kingdom? I want to make it very, very practical. And my appeal to you today is, is this. If, if you could hear my appeal, it is this. Don't settle for simply being a consumer, for living life as a consumer. And specifically, a consumer as it relates to spiritual things or the church or what it means to be a Christian. And I mean, where you come in and you make church an occasional part of your life because you feel like you need something. And then you come in and you, and you take in something, you, you take in some Bible information and you perhaps critique it 
or you curate it, meaning that you, you decide what is best for you, and then when you've had what you think you need, then you basically say, I'm good, and then you step away, you dismiss the rest of it, and you never act on anything. That's what I mean by consuming. And the reason why I say that is because I know I'm on good, good grounds because James himself, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about, he warns followers of Jesus about being hearers, but without being a doer. And so it's very possible for us, even as people who profess to be followers of Jesus, to slip into this mode of, of being a consumer and not really acting on what it is that God wants us to act on. So what if you do desire to join God in his working in the world? How might you get started? That's the question I want to ask today and I want to answer. And I want to suggest three things that might help you get started, okay? Three things that might help you get started. The first is a foundational conviction. The second is the content of the good news. And the third is an awareness of your context. So three C's, conviction, content, and context, all right? So let's start with the, the foundational conviction. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Acts 17. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. It's page 926 in the Blue Bible. Turn to Acts 17. I'll be going to various texts, but I'm going to root this first one in Acts 17. And while you're turning there, the context is that Paul is in Athens. He's arrived in Athens, and he's waiting for two of his traveling mates to, to come to Athens. In Athens, he finds himself in the midst of the literary, artistic, and philosophical center of the Greco-Roman world. Here was a city that was proud of its intellectual heritage, a heritage that has continued to shape Western civilization. It's the heritage that produced people such as, names such as Thucydides, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Euripides, people who have shaped the philosophical and, and, and the and the cultural moorings of civilizations ever since they wrote. And so here's Paul in Athens, and in the midst of this, he also sees this emperor worship and worship of all the many gods because you need to cover your bases all the time in these places. And it says in verse 16 that while he was waiting for them, this is Silas and Timothy, Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Historian William Barclay says it was said that there were more statues, there were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together, and that in Athens it was easier to meet a god than a man. Imagine that. And so Paul is distressed by these idols, and that distress then propels him into a into a, a debate, into a confrontation with the with the Greek philosophers that are there the Epicureans and the Stoics. And in the midst of all this, which I'm not going to unpack because that's not my goal, but we heard it, Rachel already read to us, uh, his, part of his dialogue. And so he, he talks about this unknown God. It's basically, hey, just in case we forgot a God, we're going to put this altar to the unknown God. And he says, what therefore you worship, I'm in verse 23, as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. What is contained in those words is pretty profound. 
Because Paul makes a comment there that I think is, to me, is a foundational conviction for really joining God in his work in the world. And in those last words that I just read to you, Paul is saying that God has arranged human history to give every person the best possible chance of finding him. God has arranged human history to give every person the best possible chance of finding him. You ever considered that? I was out walking with my wife this week. She's saying, so I, she says, I'm serving in children's ministry this week. What are you going to be talking on? And so I was reviewing that with her, and I, gave her, I dropped that line to her, and she goes, I, I never thought about that before. That's fascinating. The question is, do you believe that? That God has arranged human history to give every person the best possible chance of finding him. That's what he says in verse 27, 26 and verse 27. Think about it. Why were you born now and not 100 years ago? I mean, you could have been born 100 years ago, and if you were born 100 years ago, you would have been born before antibiotics had been discovered. They were discovered in 1928. And if you would have gotten just a common cold, chances are it could go to pneumonia, and that would have been certain death, because without antibiotics, that was often how people died back then, was because of pneumonia, secondary complications of whatever they originally got. But you weren't born then. You were born... In this time and in this place, you were born here and now and not then. In this specific time and place and context and culture. Why? Well, this text seems to be saying that God, that you're here now because God put you here and that this is the best time in history for you to know God. This is the best time in history for you to reach out and to know God. And if that's already been your experience, if you've already come to know God by coming to know Jesus and to trust Jesus, then by extension, this is the best time in history for you to reach out to the people who are around you with the good news that God is in search of man. Borrowing Abraham Heschel's title. Because that's what this is saying, that God is in search of man. So you're the best person in all recorded history to be used in the lives of people around you in this time. And if you weren't, you would have been born in some other place in some other time. But you're here because you matter to God. You matter to, to this place, to this time period, and to his plan. He's placed you here because he has something for you to do. So you are who you are and you are where you are because God wants to use you for his purposes in the world. Do you believe that? You are who you are and you are where you are because God has placed you here and he wants to use you for his purposes in the world. While you think about that, what difference might that make? If you did believe that, if you really, really, if that really settled deeply in and that began to reorient our lives, reorient your life, reorient my life, then what difference might that make? Here's what it would mean for me. It means that I don't have to just read about things that happened in the Bible a long time ago. It doesn't have to just be, well, that happened then to those people. But I just, in, you know, I'm, I just have to live my regular life where nothing happens. 
Instead, it tells me that I can expect God to do things. I can expect to see Jesus at work in my life and the lives of people around me. That's what it's telling me. That I don't have to settle for just reading about God at work. I can see God at work. And I can be part of it. And that's, that's what this foundational conviction is all about. And, and it moves us from simply consuming life to partnering with God in it in a, in a meaningful way. So that's the first thing. The second thing to help you get started to really live in God's kingdom and experience God's activity is the content of the good news. The content of the good news. It really is good news. And, and if, you, if you're going, like, oh man, I know exactly what you're going to say, don't tune me out yet, okay? Give me a chance, all right? Because it really is good news. And in, in its most simple form, the good news is about Jesus. So if you're wondering, you know, if, if I have an opportunity to, to represent Christianity, represent the gospel as good news, and what makes it good news? It's because it's about Jesus. So that's your, that's your answer. Why is it good news? Because it's about Jesus. Well, what's the good news about Jesus? Well, God has chosen to reconcile us to himself in Jesus. God has chosen to reconcile us to himself in Jesus. Colossians 1.20 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The reason why God finally stepped onto this planet in the person of Jesus Christ was that in his great plan, he wanted to reconcile the world, reconcile humanity to himself in Christ. And you know what? When you hear that word reconcile, it should trigger something for you. It means that this good news is profoundly relational. Reconciliation? If you're estranged from someone, if you're having a problem with someone, right, then we're, we're living in a what? Unreconciled relationship. But to be reconciled is a relational term. And so this is saying that this good news fundamentally is about relationship, that God wants to have a relationship with us. It is not, the good news is not some kind of abstract principle. It's not some abstract proposition. And certainly it's not some kind of a formula that, that you, you try to just basically walk through in order to guarantee the afterlife for you or for your loved ones. It's much more than that. It's good news about God wanting to reconcile the world because he loves us. He loves his creation. John says in his gospel that God loved the world so much that he gave his son, that whoever places their trust in him will not perish, but will have life eternal. And that eternal life begins even in this life. It starts now and continues ad infinitum. That's what John says is this good news, that God really loves his, the world. He loves his creation. And you see this demonstrated as Jesus walks among people who are on the margins, women and children and tax collectors and sex workers and, and Pharisees and Roman oppressors. And Jesus is reaching out and he's showing his love and he's basically saying, I love you and I want to know you. Look at Jesus, and this is what you see in Jesus, someone who is giving himself to love people. And so this good, this good news is an invitation to, to know a person. John says in his gospel, John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know the one true God and Jesus whom he has sent. It's an invitation to know a person. It's, it's profoundly relational. But it's also an invitation to be freed from guilt and shame and condemnation that we experience in life. 
Paul declares in Romans 8, 1 and 2, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He sounds that out. And then at the end of the chapter, he comes back and he asks this series of questions, lest you question could someone possibly raise something from my past or from my present and point and say, see, I got you. And he says, who is there to condemn us? And again and again and again, he asks these questions because he knows that you and I doubt. We look at our lives and we tell ourselves, no, God really couldn't love me. He says, no, 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 and that keeps resounding, resounding, resounding that all those accusations cannot stand because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. We're freed from guilt and shame. And the good news is that Jesus has rescued us from sin and Satan and death and hell and living a meaningless life of simply consuming things. And so we no longer have to live as if God is disgusted by us. As if he's displeased with us. As if he's judging us. Instead, we experience his mercy. Have you lied recently? Have you stolen something? Have you driven home after drinking too much? Have you slept with someone you shouldn't have? Have you undercut somebody's reputation? Have you gossiped about someone? Have you been cynical towards someone? Kept them at a distance? The good news is that you and I don't have to be defined by those things. You and I do not have to be defined by those things. As real as they are, And as damaging as they can be, we do not have to be defined by those things. We do not have to be stuck in those. We do not have to have our life marked by those. And if you're someone who has done that or done something like that and you feel that you're carrying around the weight of that one thing, I'm telling you today on the basis of the authority of the good news of Jesus Christ that you do not have to be defined by that. That is not who you are. Because in Christ, all things are new. He loves you. His mercy is ever abundant. His grace is more than adequate to meet whatever we've done and whoever we have become. We can be covered. We can be free to new life through the grace and love and mercy of God demonstrated in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So very quickly, how might you get started in joining God in his work in the world? First is a foundational conviction. The second is the content of the good news. Finally, and just very quickly, an awareness of your context. And that's basically asking the question, who's around you? And because I've already spoken in a series on Luke 10, it's a, it's a text about Jesus sending out the 70. Why 70? Because in Genesis chapter 10, it talks about the 70 nations. Jesus had already sent out the 12, and the 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel, Israel reconstituted around Jesus, but now in sending out the 70, he's saying the gospel is going to go out beyond Israel. And in Luke 10, he's talking about sending out the 70, and it's basically saying the gospel is intended to be sent out and to go out beyond just the 12 disciples, to be carried by more than just the 12 disciples. And so it, 
that text includes this whole issue of who is a person of peace and are we being attentive? Are we aware of the people who are around you, around us? So I found this tool this week, which I thought was really cool. You'll probably like, you're really dumb. But um, <laughs> yeah, have you ever played tic-tac-toe? It's a fascinating game. Just found it this week. It's amazing. I'll teach you how to play afterwards. Um, no, actually, it's just an image. The, the image, I think, was very helpful because someone uh, put it out there, and I thought it was very helpful because what you do is you, you, you could do it right now. You could draw a tic-tac-toe board on the back of your notes where you usually cartoon and draw caricatures of me up here. Um, and you could, you, could, you could do that, and then you put your name in the center, and then what you seek to do is to, to become aware of eight people around you your neighbors, your eight neighbors, eight people in your network of relationships, and you fill in their names. And you begin to pray for them. You begin to seriously pray for them, or if they're neighbors, you begin to walk in the neighborhood and make yourself available. You take something to them. You share something of your life with them. Maybe it might be a flower, a fresh-cut flower arrangement from your garden, or something, some vegetable or fruit that has come from, from your backyard, or maybe it's, it's something that you've made, uh, you know, some kind of pies, cookies, uh, maybe, you know, you're, we have some craft beer people here. Maybe it's some of your, your really good craft beer or your jam, your homemade jam. Something like that where you're saying, this is, who I, this is part of who I am and I want to share it with you and, you. and you begin to show them love. And as you get to know them, you begin to ask the question, what might good news look like for this person? What might good news look like for this person? How might Jesus be welcomed in their life? And so Luke 10 is about pe- being people who live not as consumers but as people who are being sent by Jesus. Jesus is sending us, extroverts, introverts, timid, brash, bold, whoever we are, he's sending us and he wants to partner with us. Now here's where it ends up for me. Here's what I want. As I was going through this and I was ending this series, here's what I want more than anything else. I want my own stories of God doing stuff. See, I realize I've pastored and I realize that I, I've seen my role a lot as, as trying to equip people to be used by God in the world. But you know what? In, 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 along the line, I think that I have lost something of being on the front end myself. And it's easy because you're just constantly just getting bombarded with, I need this, or you're getting hit with expectations about what you should be or what you shouldn't be. And I realize that what I really want is more than anything else, what I want is I want, I want fresh stories of God working. And I want them to be my stories. I want to see God showing up. I want to see Jesus doing stuff. I want to see it. And that's what my prayer is. And I want to partner with him. And I want to be used by him. And I want to love people. And I want to listen to them. And I want to pray for them. And I want to walk with them in life, whoever they might be. That's what I want more than anything else. And I'm asking Jesus to put me into that place, no matter what it takes, so that I see the reality of Jesus show up. And so here's a prayer that I came up with this week and give you an opportunity to pray for it as we move into our communion time together. Simple prayer I came up with. Jesus, show me how you want to use me to love people around me. Jesus, show me how you want to use me to love people around me. Simple prayer, but very important prayer. I'm praying that. I invite you to pray that. I want to invite the band up now and then I'll give you an opportunity to pray that and then we'll uh, transition into, into the communion time. All right? Band, if you want to come up and let's get ready. Just take a moment, and just in the quietness of this moment, if that's something you want to pray, then just pray that quietly. And you can go ahead and talk, you know what I mean? You don't, you don't pray without using words, so you can just quietly talk to Jesus and say, Jesus, show me how you want to use me to love people around me. 
and then I'll pray, okay? Lord Jesus, hear these prayers. And I pray for your mercy and your grace to flood us. And as we come to this table and we receive the life that truly nourishes, that we would sense your presence, your overwhelming presence of love in your name. Amen.